The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Tonight on Human Voices Wakus, we will travel to three very different places. In the first, we will hear from Bruce Springsteen on the recording of his sparse 1982 album, Nebraska, from a, a few comments about it that he has made over the years. And we'll see how he came to realize that what he thought was a demo of just him sitting around with a guitar and a sort of minimum of technology, that that actually was the album that he wanted to release. It didn't need to be re-recorded, spruced up, and polished at all. And in the second, we'll hear from the historian Simon Shama in his book, Landscape and Memory, not only about his own family's roots in the Eastern European Jewish communities and the forests between Poland and, and Lithuania, but also the fate of one Polish village that could stand in for many others in Europe uh, following World War II. And finally, we will hear from Homer himself from Book 24 of the Iliad when aged King Priam, whose sons have all been killed and whose city is about to be taken, uh, goes to visit Achilles to ask for the body of his son, Hector. So let's get down to it right after this message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1970, I rode for 15 hours in the back of a U-Haul truck to open for Roy Orbison at the Nashville Music Fair. It was a summer night and I was 20 years old and he came out in dark glasses, a dark suit, and he played some music. In 74, just prior to going into the studio to make Born to Run, I was looking at Dwayne Eddy for his guitar sound and I was listening to a collection of Phil Spector records, and I was listening to Roy Orbison's all-time greatest hits. I lay in bed at night with just the lights of my stereo, and I'd hear crying, love hurts, running scared, only the lonely and it's over, fill in my room. And this is Bruce Springsteen in 1987, introducing Roy Orbison as he is being inducted 
into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and this is what he continues to say about this mentor, about this hero of his, who seems to have become uh, Springsteen's friend. He says, uh, Some rock and roll reinforces friendship and community, but for me, Roy's ballads were always best when you were alone and in the dark. Roy scrapped the idea that you needed verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus to have a hit. His arrangements were complex and operatic. They had rhythm and movement, and they addressed the underside of pop romance. They were scary. His voice was unearthly. He had the ability, like all great rock and rollers, to sound like he dropped in from another planet and yet get the stuff that was right to the heart of what you were living in today. And that was how he opened up your vision. He made a little town in New Jersey feel as big as the sound of his records. I always remember laying in bed and right at the end of It's Over, when he hits that note where it sounds like the world's going to end. I'd be laying there promising myself that I was never going to go outside again and never going to talk to another woman. Right about that time my needle would slip back to the first cut and I'd hear the opening riff to Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman, I don't believe you. You're not the truth. No one could look as good as you. And that was when I understood. I carry his records with me when I go on tour today, and I'll always remember what he means to me and what he meant to me when I was young and afraid to love. In 1975, when I went into the studio to make Born to Run, I wanted to make a record with words like Bob Dylan that sounded like Phil Spector, but most of all I wanted to sing like Roy Orbison. Now everybody knows that nobody sings like Roy Orbison. And I first found those words in the liner notes to The Greatest Hits of Roy Orbison, a CD that came out in the late 80s. And isn't that something? Um, I remembered seeing that in the liner notes and I had to go to a dusty old box where all the uh, CD booklets that I've uh, bought with CDs over the years are kept and I had to dig out the one for Roy Orbison's Greatest Hits. I don't know what you would do today, what that feeling is when you can just go and find it um, immediately. But that made me remember the kind of surprise I had coming upon Bruce Springsteen's 1982 album called Nebraska. I've never been a great Springsteen fan, but over the past few years he slowly grown on me. And while I don't think that I've heard enough of him and heard enough of it on repeat to be able to say that Nebraska is his best album, it is my favorite at least, of his. And I think you'll understand why if you take a listen yourself, assuming that you haven't listened to it already. And Springsteen has 
two wonderful remarks about this album that I just wanted to share tonight. The first of them comes only a few years after the album was released, and this is what he said about Nebraska in a 1984 Rolling Stone interview. He says, I was just doing songs for the next rock album, and I decided that what always took me so long in the studio was the writing. I would get in there, and I just wouldn't have the material written, or it wasn't written well enough, and so I'd record for a month, get a couple of things, go home, write some more, record for another month. It wasn't very efficient. So this time, I got a little TAC 4-track cassette machine, and I said, I'm going to record these songs, and if they sound good with just me doing them, then I'll teach them to the band. I could sing and play the guitar, and then I had two tracks to do something else, like overdub a guitar or add a harmony. It was just going to be a demo. Then I had a little echoplex that I mixed through, and that was it and that was the tape that became the record. It's amazing that it got there, because I was carrying that cassette around with me, in my pocket, without a case for a couple of weeks, just dragging it around. Finally, we realized, uh-oh, that's the album. Technically, it was difficult to get it on a disc. The stuff was recorded so strangely, the needle would read a lot of distortion and wouldn't track in the wax. We almost had to release it, just as a cassette. And as you'll hear in this next quotation from him, uh, what happened was, is he realized that what he thought was just the demo, what he thought Bruce Springsteen did, uh, what he thought that he was just recording so that he could teach the songs to the other bandmates, to the E Street Band, uh, it turns out that that was the album. And I think that's why I love this so much, because there is no polish to it. There's no Phil Spector to it. Uh, there's no sense of it being a rock record. And even the lyrics, um, there's no self-conscious, there's no awareness of it trying to be Dylan or trying to be anything else. And this is a much longer passage from his uh, autobiography, Born to Run, which was released, I believe, in 2020. And listen to what this says. This is a much longer uh, sort of rumination on this album. Bruce Springsteen says, Nebraska began as an unknowing meditation on my childhood and its mysteries. I had no conscious political agenda or social theme. I was after a feeling, a tone, that felt like the world I'd known and still carried inside me. The remnants of that world were still only ten minutes and ten miles from where I was living. The ghosts of Nebraska were drawn from my many sojourns into the small town streets I'd grown up on. My family, Dylan, Woody, Hank, the American Gothic short stories of Flannery O'Connor, the noir novels of James M. Cain, the quiet violence of the films of Terence Malick, and the decayed fable of director Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter, all guided my imagination. That, and the flat, dead voice that drifted through my town on the nights I couldn't sleep. The voice I heard when I'd wander in a 3 a.m. trance, out onto the front porch of my home, 
to feel the sticky heat and listen to streets silent but for the occasional grinding fears of tractor trailers groaning like dinosaurs beneath the dust cloud pulling up south street to route 33 out of town then quiet and he goes on to say this the songs of nebraska were written quickly all rising from the same ground each song took maybe three or four takes to record i was only making demos quote unquote demos highway patrolman and state trooper were recorded only once each that's incredible if you know the song highway patrolman um i i can't believe that was only recorded once Me and Frankie laughing and drinking Nothing feels better than blood on blood Taking turns dancing with Marie As the band plays Night of the Johnstown Flood That's like the, uh, the story that the manuscript of Tacitus's Germania, you know, it survived from, uh, from the first century until the Middle Ages, uh, somehow or other, it only survives now in one manuscript. Um, it's, it's as incredible as that. Um, the song Mansion on the Hill was first. My father's house was last, with the song Nebraska serving as the record's heart. I tapped into white gospel, early Appalachian music and the blues. The writing was in the details, the twisting of a ring, the twirling of a baton was where these songs found their character. As in The Night of the Hunter, I often wrote from a child's point of view, mansion on a hill, used cars, and my father's house were all stories that came out of my experience with my family. And it might be for me that my father's house is, uh, I can't say the best Springsteen song, but I do think it is my favorite of his because it does sound like, um, again, no polish, no spit, no shy, no band, no thought of a tour. This is not something that um, can be used as an anthem. It's not something that would ever be played in a stadium. It sounds like these old blues records that Springsteen would have known as well, um, as if it was recorded in hiding and badly but it is still the sound of somebody's soul somehow. Last night I dreamed that I was a child Out where the pines grow Wild and tall I was trying to Make it home through the forest Before the darkness falls And Springsteen says, I wanted black bedtime stories. I thought of the records of John Lee Hooker and Robert Johnson, music that sounded so good with the lights out. I wanted the listener to hear my characters think, 
to feel their thoughts, their choices. These songs were the opposite of the rock music I'd been writing. They were restrained, still on the surface, with a world of moral ambiguity and unease below. The tension running through the music's core was the thin line between stability and that moment when the things that connect you to your world, your job, your family, your friends, the love and grace in your heart, fail you. I wanted the music to feel like a waking dream and to move like poetry. I wanted the blood in these songs to feel destined and fateful. And if we're talking about creativity here, on the one hand, part of me wants to say, uh, these songs were the opposite of the rock music I'd been writing. And I say, yes, sure. Um, why didn't you do more of this type? But then you realize something that uh, a mind as um, a mind as fertile as Bruce Springsteen's. You also think of uh, the way that Shakespeare or a very good short story writer is able to inhabit millions of or just hundreds of souls, hundreds of characters. Um, that's like telling them they should only write this kind of play. Uh, it's simply not done and um, it's an impossible demand to make. It's the people in uh, Pennebaker's documentary uh, lamenting Dylan going electric. They don't realize that uh, someone who has a mind like that can't stay in one place for very long. and You can't make that demand uh, on them. And the other thing too is that if Springsteen hadn't written the rock music that he had got away from in the album Nebraska, uh, hardly anybody may have ever even have heard it. I had the same impression this past weekend going to see Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. On the one hand, um, it's too bad that a first-time filmmaker can't make a movie like Oppenheimer and get it in front of millions of people. On the other hand, that just seems to be the way things work, doesn't it? It takes uh, almost 30 years in Hollywood to be able to get the clout to be able to put a movie like that together and have it released uh, for the big time. But here, uh, Springsteen talks about um, what I was just mentioning about how this became the album, these recordings. He says, frustrated at blowing all my money on studio time, I sent my guitar tech out to get a recorder, a little less lo-fi than the cassette recorder I usually use to lay down my new song ideas. I needed a better and less expensive way to tell if my new material was record worthy. He came back with a four-track Japanese Tascam 144 cassette recorder. We set it up in my bedroom. I'd sing, play, and with the two tracks left, I could add a backing vocal, an extra guitar, or a tambourine. On four tracks, that's all you could do. I mixed it through a guitar echoplex unit onto a beatbox, like the kind you'd take to the beach. Total cost for the project, about a grand. After that, I went into the studio, brought in the band, re-recorded and remixed everything. On listening, I realized I'd succeeded in doing nothing but damaging what I'd created. We got it to sound cleaner, more hi-fi, but not nearly as atmospheric as 
authentic. And it's interesting that he could only realize that after going through all that work of re-recording it again with an entire band, um, listening to just the tapes on his own, uh, that thought did not seem to have occurred to him. And the last thing he says is this, all popular artists get caught between making records and making music. If you're lucky, sometimes it's the same thing. When you learn to craft your music into recordings, there's always something gained and something lost. The ease of an unselfconscious voice gives way to a formality of presentation. On certain records, that trade-off may destroy the essential nature of what you've done. At the end of the day, satisfied that I'd explored the music's possibilities and every blind alley, I pulled out the original cassette I'd been carrying around in my jeans pocket and said, this is it. There are many wonders in Simon Shamba's 1995 book, Landscape and Memory, but the ones that I keep coming back to are the stories and the anecdotes that he tells about himself, about his own family, coming from Eastern Europe and eventually landing in London where Shamba was born. And so he says at one point, he's talking about how he always thought of the Jews of Eastern Europe as essentially urban types even when they lived in villages, tradesmen and artisans, tailors and carpenters, and butchers and bakers, with the Rebbe as the lord of the shtetl, microcosms of the great swarming communities of Wilno and Bialystok and Minsk. But then he realizes you're talking about Poland and Lithuania and the borders of what those countries are now and how they've moved back and forth over the centuries he realizes that his own family uh, could not be considered urban types. They were Jews living in the wilderness. They were literally living in the forest. And this is what Shama has to say about them. He says, among them, somewhere was my family. My mother's father, Mark, who did become a butcher, left this region along with three brothers at the turn of the century driven by the horseback terror of the Cossack pogroms. But his father, Eli, like many other Jews, made his living cutting timber from the great primeval forests, hauling it to the tributaries that fed the Niemen and floating the logs north to the sawmills of Grodno, or even farther downstream, all the way to the old provincial city of Kalnyo. The waters were full of these Jewish river rafts, sometimes spending weeks at a time on the rafts, sleeping in crude cabins constructed from logs, propped on end in the company of chickens and each other. During the brutal Lithuanian winters, when the rivers were frozen, he would transport the timber on long sleds driven by big Polish farm horses or teams of oxen. From Kalnio or Wilnio on the river Velia, the lumber would be sold to the Russian railway companies for ties or freight wagons or shipped further downstream 
and rafts of a thousand or more logs to the Baltic for export and usually handled by other and grander Jewish timber companies. Somewhere beside a Lithuanian river with a primeval forest all about it stood my great-grandfather Eli's house, itself made of roughly fashioned timber with a cladding of plaster, surrounded by a stone wall to announce its social pretensions. My mother, who was born and grew up in the yeasty clamor of London's Jewish East End, retains just the scraps and shreds of her father's and uncle's memories of this landscape. Tales of brothers fending off wolves from the sleds, a standard brag of the woodland taverns, or of the dreamy youngest brother, Hyman, falling asleep at the loading depot and being rudely woken and tied to a log and heaved into the river. Was this family as improbable as the Yiddish woodsmen of Ruthenia I had seen in an old Roman Vishniak photo, poling logs in their sidelocks in Hamburgs, lumberjacks with their tzitzis? And just where exactly was this place, this house, this world of stubby yellow cigarettes, fortifying pulls from grimy vodka bottles, Hasidic songs bellowed through the Pini Polishe Velder. Where was it? I pressed my mother while we sat eating salad in a West End hotel, and for the first time in my life, I badly needed to know. Outside Konyo, that's all we ever knew. She shrugged her shoulders and went back to the lettuce. And a page later, he says this. I remembered someone in a Cambridge common room pestering the self-designated non-Jewish Jew and Marxist historian Isaac Deutscher, himself a native of this country, about his roots. Trees have roots, Deutscher shot back scornfully. Jews have legs. And I thought, as yet another metaphor collapsed into ironic literalism, well, some Jews have both and branches and stems too. So when one author hails ye trees of Lithuania as if they belonged only to the gentry and their serfs, foresters and gamekeepers, I could, in our family's memory, lay some claim to those thick groves of larch, hornbeam, and oak. I dare say that even the lime tree, worshipped by pagan Germans and Lithuanians as the abode of the living spirits, lay on the sleds and carts, waiting to be turned into the clogs and sandals worn everywhere in the Lithuanian villages. Notoriously, Jews and Gentiles did not share the Lithuanian woods as happy neighbors. From the time they arrived in the forest region in the mid-17th century, fleeing from the slaughter inflicted by Bogdan Kamelniki's murderous Cossacks in the Ukraine, Relations have always been paradoxical, sometimes painful. Though Great Poland had been home to the Jews for much longer, perhaps as far back as the 12th century, they had always constituted an irreducibly distinctive presence in the kingdom, what Alexander Hertz has defined as a caste. And though their economic value was recognized, 
neither the intense, often primitive fervor of Polish Catholicism, nor the mysticism of Slavic Christian Orthodoxy, was auspicious for humanizing the Jewish presence. And to these two kinds of dangerous ecstasies, Judaism added its own, its in the form of Hasidism, invented at precisely the time that Poland was in the process of being torn to shreds by the partitioning powers. So, Polish Jews became themselves doubly flayed by history. They were martyrs, martyrs. Though the first Polish pogrom took place in Warsaw in 1794, while the nation was in its terminal throes, the riot remained an isolated incident and its leaders were punished rather than celebrated by the national government. Somehow, the worlds of the Jews and the Poles, anxious and often affronted by each other, were too thoroughly shaken together for the poison of demonization to work its way through the bloodstream of the 19th century nation. And what Shema does in the first chapter of Landscape and Memory, it's sort of a road trip through Poland and what he does is he realizes that uh, he will not be able to go to this place called Konyo or Kaunas. He's not able to get into Lithuania, but he is able to go to a village in Poland, you see, which is called Punsk. And this is what he says about going to Punsk, this town in northeastern Poland, right on the edge of uh, right on the border with Lithuania. And again, this is a place that would have been Polish here, but a century or a decade or however long ago it would have been Lithuanian and so on and so forth. And this is an image that I took and put into my poem, The Great Year. One of the characters in The Great Year is the daughter of a rabbi who has survived uh, towards the end of the world. And where the rabbi lives is in these woods, in these forests of Ruthenia. And he has these memories of these lumberjacks with their prayer shawls and, uh, and all the rest of it. But when Shama goes there, when he goes to the city of Punsk, this is what he discovers there. And I guess this would have been in the early 90s, after all of the upheaval with the reunification of Germany and the fall of the Soviet Union as well, complicating things. This is what Shama has to say. Um, they're in this village of Punsk. Uh, we asked, and there was neither embarrassment or hesitation. Over there, said a stout man in front of the church, pointing to a row of solid cottages with overhanging gables and fenced yards lining the main street. Over there, all Jewish properties. Not now. No Jews now. And you can see that reaction in any good documentary about the Shoah, about the Holocaust, especially the one that is just called Shoah, where, you, where these film crews go to Poland and Lithuania and places like that in the early 70s, the early and late 70s, and ask people, where did the Jews used to live? And sometimes they laugh and chuckle or they just grin and they point to the houses and they say just about the same thing. Um, all Jewish properties, but not now. No Jews now. And Shama says this. There had to be, I knew, a Jewish cemetery, and there was. Hands waved us in the general direction, but we drove out of the village more than once, vainly searching the streets, 
before we realized it must have been sighted much further off. The Mercedes followed a street until it became a dirt road, and then a farm track. We found ourselves at the edge of a wheat field, the car's wheels spinning crazily in a deep tractor-tread route. The Bogdan, the driver, gunned the engine savagely and careened through the field to descend again to a meddled path. We got out, and beyond the snarling and the smoke of scorched rubber, there it was, a crumbling gray stone wall attempting to contain an acre or so of trees and long unmowed grass. Behind the wall, the ground rose up in a gentle slope. It was a burial mound, and inside the enclosure, what had looked like grass turned out to be a solid carpet of dandelions packed so thickly that they formed a rippling, deep-pile meadow, perhaps a foot and a half tall, catching the light through the trees in dancing, speckled patterns. It took a while to see any sign of stones at all, but close to the top of the little hill, one or two stuck out from the undergrowth at crazy angles. Was this all? Were these the generations of Jewish Punsk? Had the Nazis ripped out the stones as they had throughout Poland, or had the Lithuanians done it themselves? It was only by crushing the dandelions underfoot that I could feel something other than soft-packed dirt. I knelt down and parted the stalks and the leaves. I brushed away the fuzz of their seed balls. Two inches of grizzled stone appeared, the Hebrew lettering virtually obliterated, by heavy growths of tawny and mustard-colored lichen. I could just make out a name, Tet Bet Yud He, Tevye, Tovye. I sat and swept my arms about in the dandelions like a child making a snow angel. Another stone appeared, and another. Digging down a few inches brought another up from the netherworld. I could have spent a day with a shovel and shears and exposed an entire world, the subterranean universe of the Jews of Punsk. But to what end? I thought of my father looking stoically out at Hampstead Heath and reverting to cricket metaphors before he died, saying, when you've had your innings, you've had your innings. The tombs themselves were being buried, sliding gently and irrevocably into their companionable mound as verdant Lithuania rose to reclaim them. The headstones that had been lovingly cut and carved were losing any sign that human hands had wrought them. They were becoming a geological layer. I lay down and stared through the branches at the blue beyond, listened to the elms and the poplars while saying an indistinct Kaddish, and thought, well, once there was a Lithuania and no Jews, and for that matter no Christians either. Then there were Jews, and some of them lived about the wood and took it to the rivers and the towns, and now there are no Jews again, and the forest stands there. So perhaps my old teacher Deutscher was right, I thought. Trees have roots, Jews have legs. So I walked away from the mound at Punsk.
So let's end with a bit of poetry here, and we'll go back to what is very nearly the beginning, and we'll go back to the Iliad of Homer. And of course, the thing that gets you in the door is that it is the story of the Trojan War. It is a scene out of the Trojan War, and it is about anger and rage. It begins, saying, Goddess, the anger of Peleus' son, Achilles, and its devastation, which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans. And you can go on like that for about 500 pages of rage and anger and war. There's a very good reason why it is still stunning to find a particular translation of the Iliad. I think it's by Stanley Lombardo. To find it in the bookstore and the cover is a scene of the boats landing on Omaha Beach in uh, on D-Day, and how fitting a photo that is for a poem that was probably composed between 1000 and 800 BC. But you have to do something else with all of that, don't you? Um, that isn't how you want to end the poem. And it's not only a poem about rage, about the immense detail of what happens to human beings in war, physically the soldiers, but also the families of the Trojans who are inside the city as well. But it's also a poem of great tenderness at certain points. And much of the tenderness seems to surround the Trojan hero, Hector. And at the end of the poem, of course, uh, Hector is killed by Achilles, who has refused to enter the fight for various reasons. And when he finally does, he seals the deal and ends the war by killing Hector. And what happens in Book 24 of the Iliad is that the gods allow Hector's father, aged Priam, to visit Achilles in his tent and just sort of beg mercy of him so that he can uh, take his son's body back and give him a proper burial rite and funeral service and the whole thing. And that is how the poem ends, with this sort of glorious old-time funeral. But the meeting of Priam with Achilles is one of the great things in the world. And I'll just read part of it. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly long scene. Uh, Priam shows up and they talk, and then Achilles reminds him, well, you know, uh, you might as well stay to eat, and he allows him to stay to eat. And then Priam says, well, will you let me stay the night? And he lets him stay the night, and it goes on like this. But uh, just in the beginning, and just to end this episode briefly with something quite powerful, uh, this is from the translation of Richmond Lattimore, and this is how he tells the story. It says, again, Priam has been escorted uh, to the camp of the Achaeans of the Greeks by the gods, and suddenly he is just there in the tent of Achilles. It says, tall Priam came in unseen by the other men and stood close beside him and caught the knees of Achilles in his arms, and kissed the hands that were dangerous and manslaughtering, and had killed so many of his sons. 
as when dense disaster closes on one who has murdered a man in his own land, and he comes to the country of others, to a man of substance, and wonder seizes on those who behold him. So Achilles wondered as he looked on Priam, a godlike man, and the rest of them wondered also and looked at each other. But now Priam spoke to him in the words of a suppliant. Achilles, like the gods, remember your father, one who is of years like mine, and on the door-sill of sorrowful old age. And they who dwell nearby encompass him and afflict him, nor is there any to defend him against the wrath and destruction. Yet surely he, when he hears of you, and that you are still living, is gladdened within his heart, and all his days he is hopeful, that he will see his beloved son come home from the Troad. But for me, my destiny was evil. I have had the noblest sons of Troy, but I say not one of them is left to me. Fifty were my sons when the sons of the Achaeans came here. Nineteen were born to me from the womb of a single mother, and other women bore the rest in my palace, and of these violent Ares broke the strength in the knees of most of them. But one was left me who guarded my city and people, that one that you killed a few days since as he fought in defense of his country, Hector, for whose sake I come now to the ships of the Achaeans to win him back from you, and I bring you gifts beyond number. Honor, then, the gods, Achilles, and take pity upon me, remembering your father, yet I am still more pitiful. I have gone through what no other mortal on earth has gone through. I put my lips to the hands of the man who has killed my children. How the hell is that? Um, isn't that one hell of a line? Two lines. I have gone through what no other mortal on earth has gone through. I put my lips to the hands of the man who has killed my children. So he spoke and stirred in the other a passion of grieving for his own father. He took the old man's hand and pushed him gently away, and the two remembered, as Priam sat huddled at the feet of Achilles and wept close for man-slaughtering Hector, and Achilles wept now for his own father, now again for Patroclus, his friend who has died at the hands of Hector earlier in the poem. The sound of their mourning moved in the house. Then, when great Achilles had taken full satisfaction and sorrow, and the passion for it had gone from his mind and body, thereafter he rose from his chair, and took the old man by the hand, and set him on his feet again, in pity for the gray head and the gray beard, and spoke to him and addressed him in winged words. This is what he says, Ah, unlucky! Surely you have had much evil to endure in your spirit. How could you dare to come alone to the ships of the Achaeans, and before my eyes, when I am the one who have killed in such numbers such brave sons of yours? The heart in you 
is iron. Come then, and sit down upon this chair, and you and I will even let our sorrows lie still in the heart for all our grieving. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.